Well, good morning, Grace family. Good to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Rob Lister. Uh, my wife and I have been members at Grace for five or six years now. I teach theology for a living at Biola, so welcome. Especially welcome to those of you <clears throat> who uh, may be visiting with us today. We're glad to have you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take those out. Turn in them to Second Peter, please. Second Peter is near the end of the Bible, so you know, look for Revelation and go to the left a little bit. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to read along with us. Stick your hand in the air. One of our ushers would be glad to give you one that's yours to take with you. Uh, we'd love for you to be able to dig into God's Word with us this morning. We'll dive in there in a bit, uh, but I want to mention as, as you're uh, ferreting around for Second Peter uh, that I all, what I almost titled my sermon. Okay, what I almost titled this message was, Knowing Less But Seeing More Than Demons Do. Knowing Less But Seeing More Than Demons Do. Now, I ultimately didn't go with that because our passage doesn't specifically mention demons, but I think that almost title uh, gets at uh, the description of what Peter is after in a very fitting way, in particular with regard to what it means to know God and to know him savingly. <clears throat> demons, as you probably are aware, know vastly more information, a vastly more data about God than we do. James 2.19 tells us that the demons believe that God is one and they shudder. So their factual beliefs about God are, are orthodox and they're accurate. They watched some of what God did at creation. They lived in heaven for a time and they saw God's character and his power. They know his son. And after their fall, they, they have continued watching and prowling and attempting to devour faith. But at the same time that demons know more information than we do, they also see less than believers do. Jonathan Edwards once preached a sermon on James 2.19. He titled it, True Grace Distinguished from the Experience of Devils. I think that's a great title. His point was that beyond the accurate factual knowledge that we as believers may share in common with demons— there is something much more, much deeper, much richer that saving faith sees that demons and the damned do not. What is it that they don't see? They don't see that Jesus is beautiful. They don't see God as precious. They don't see the sacrifice of Jesus as precious. And because they don't see him as beautiful and they don't see his sacrifice as precious, they may know all kinds of things about Jesus, but they do not love him or treasure him. See, Jonathan Edwards' sermon and the one that uh, we're going to be looking at by, by Peter today in just a moment really gets us right on the threshold of looking into an ancient dilemma. One of the oldest aberrations of the gospel, we'll be asking ourselves today, what counts as saving knowledge of the Lord? What kind of faith are we talking about when we say that we're saved by faith alone? What is the role of effort in the Christian life? Is effort antithetical? to saving faith, or is it a necessary expression of it? And I want to try to give us all a handle at the outset on, on this issue, where we're going, by, by, by calling to our attention a couple of distinctions. Uh, one way of putting it would be to distinguish between profession of faith and possession of faith. There's a difference between mere profession and possession. Or we could put it differently and say that there is a difference between knowing Jesus and merely knowing about him. And Peter wants to warn us today that if our heads are full of information while our lives manifest indifference to Jesus, then we've cozied up to a kind of faith that doesn't save at all. 
That's the false teaching that Peter is up against in this letter. We know from the letter that false teachers arose probably from within this congregation, professing to be Christians, but somewhere along the way they began to deny the future coming of Jesus, and as a result, they denied future judgment as well. We'll see all of that in chapters 2 and 3. But as they denied future coming, the future coming of Jesus and the future judgment of Jesus, that not surprisingly opened the door to loose living. Or maybe it was the other way around. We don't know for sure. Maybe and, uh, in, in, in an effort to, to, to prop up their lusts of defiling passion, they cobbled together a theology that would make them feel comfortable or sleep easier at night. But in any case, it seems that they used a twisted doctrine of grace to prop up their loose living. Maybe they said, faith, not works. Maybe they said, faith in Christ requires no new direction because a new direction would require effort and effort, as we know, equals legalism. We've probably all reasoned with ourselves like that before. But we need to see this morning, and Peter wants us to see this morning, that reasoning like that, believing like that, is a demonic error because it commends to us as saving a kind of faith that is only notional and will not get in the way of people's indulgence of things like lust and greed. Now we have to be careful here, right? Because while notional Christianity is not the answer, legalism isn't the answer either. The antidote to no effort is not to prescribe only effort. We don't stay out of the ditch on the right by crashing into the ditch on the left. Both will destroy you. And if I could just, as a footnote, as an aside, uh, mention that, that there's a reason that some books of the Bible uh, seem very strongly, say, for example, Galatians, to condemn the notion of salvation by works, and other books of the Bible, like, say, for example, Second Peter, that strongly seem to condemn the notion of salvation by notional faith alone. The reason that we have these different books in the Bible is because these respective authors are addressing the needs that are arising from the dangers facing particular congregations. So if one person is on the cusp of buying into salvation by works righteousness, they need to be warned against that. Whereas if another person is on the cusp of falling prey to the error of salvation by notional faith only, they need to be warned against that error. Now we need the wisdom to know which false gospel is confronting us in any given moment. As you know, we can toggle ourselves between works righteousness and notional faith only, sometimes within the space of a single day. But I do want to suggest to you this morning that Peter's word, I think, is especially fitting to us in the context of American evangelicalism today. I do believe that legalism isn't dead and it won't be until Jesus returns, but man, oh man, do we live in an era where people's reception of Jesus is heavily conditioned on what you think the implications of his lordship are for their sex lives. Maybe we reject him if he's too invasive or perhaps try to reconceive him. But don't dare think he's got anything to say about what goes on with my sexual passion, our day seems to say. Now at the outset, I do want you to know that a fair bit of my application today will be made in the direction of sexual ethics. That's mainly because that's what Peter's doing in Second Peter. Right? Again, we'll see a lot of that in, in chapter 2. But since it's his emphasis, I think it's appropriate to take it as our emphasis as well while obviously understanding that we can and should broaden out to other areas of application in our lives as individuals. 
Well, anyway, so that's the false, pe- the false teaching that Peter's letter is confronting. And I think Peter's letter uh, helps us, and our passage today in particular, helps us to stay on the path in at least three ways. So let me give you the three, and then we'll spend the rest of the time working through these three. Peter's letter helps us stay on the path first by showing that effort to grow in the Christian life isn't an optional extra. Effort to grow is not an optional extra. Secondly, he helps us stay on the path by showing how children of God can and should grow in ways that are not legalistic. Shows us how to grow in ways that aren't legalistic. And third, he gives us a sampling of what the fruit of true gospel growth looks like. Okay? So let's read our passage. Uh, our passage for the day is actually 2 Peter 1, 5 to 9, but I'm going to read a little bit more uh, of the surrounding context. As Randy mentioned last week, uh, 5 through 9 is sandwiched uh, as, the, as, as the middle part of a, a larger kind of sermon and point that Peter was making that starts in verse 3 and ends in verse 11. So we'll preach 5 to 9, but we'll read 3 to 11. <clears throat> 2 Peter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see wonders in your word today. We pray that you would help us to see and savor more, to savor Jesus more today and this week, more than demons can ever do. We ask it in his name. Amen. Okay, so our first point is that effort to grow in the Christian life is not an optional extra. The opponents of Peter were stressing that knowledge of God came with no obligations. And so Peter is laboring in his letter to show that true knowledge, he wants us to know what true knowledge of God is. And this is what is on his mind before he is soon to be martyred. Now we see that this understanding of, of saving knowledge of God is, is almost a theme of his entire epistle. Uh, it, it begins, right, as a bookend in chapter 1, verse 2. We see it as the other bookend in the final verse of the book, chapter 3, verse 18. But for our purposes, we begin to pick up this thread and follow it in verse 5, which says, for this very reason. Now that phrase is probably the most important one in the passage, and we will come back to it. But he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and then so on to the rest of a other lists of virtues. And some people might stumble here over the word supplement. <clears throat> Maybe supplement in English sounds like these virtues, these signs of growth, are an optional extra. Maybe we think that uh, Peter's saying, uh, well, I want you to make an effort to add these virtues 
Um, but you've already got faith, so if you're not able to add them, you'll be okay. That is not what he's saying. Right? The word supplement may po- have that possible sound in English, but Peter's point is more like through your faith or by means of your faith, supply virtue and so on and so forth. In other words, the list begins with faith, which is where it should, and then says that people who possess a living faith birthed in them by the power of God are new creations. And as new creations, these people eagerly make every effort to rely on God's power and promises so that over the course of time, their faith grows from an acorn into a mighty oak. All right? Well, along the lines of seeds and fruit, verse 8 warns us against unfruitful knowledge. What is fruitless knowledge? I think fruitless knowledge is the kind that's no different, no different from the kind that demons have. And if our faith is not distinguishable from demons by its fruit, then Peter is saying it isn't saving faith. Now, I can imagine someone <clears throat> here saying, well, uh, what about the thief on the cross? He didn't have a lot of time to demonstrate his faith by his fruit. What would you say to that? And a couple things come to mind. The first one is he didn't have a lot of time, but he did have some time. He had enough time to confess that he does not deserve what he's getting, and I do. But beyond that, I would say that there's a reason that God is God and we are not. God can see the acorn when that's all there is time to see, but we have been told to judge a tree by its fruit. What about verse 9? I think verse 9 confirms the necessity of growth as well when it says that the one who lacks these qualities is nearsighted and blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. What kind of blindness is manifested in the absence of fruit? Peter says that the person who lacks growth has become short-sighted to the most important thing. Maybe not to everything, but to the most important thing that is offered to him in Jesus, namely cleansing from sin. See, whatever a person thinks that he or she cannot live without, that's their functional God. If you think you can't live without wide-ranging sexual liberties like these heretics did, then that's what's precious to you and not Jesus. If you think that you can't live without money or prestige or good health or influence or popularity, those are the things that are precious to you, not Jesus. And in verse 9, Peter is telling us that forgiveness isn't precious to those who lack these signs of growth. It's not perfect growth, but progressive growth. But if, if, if forgiveness isn't precious to a person, that means that Jesus isn't precious to that person. He means little to them. And friends, if Jesus isn't precious to someone, how is that any different from how the demons think about him? We should not claim to trust Jesus and then live lives that indicate that he doesn't matter. And yet Peter's opponents are commending that kind of knowledge exactly, and Peter is saying that leads to death. You see, if we, if we set Jesus aside like that, right, forsaking and forgetting the preciousness of our forgiveness, it's not that we will go from worshiping and serving the, the, the God of the Bible to worshiping and serving nothing, we will always serve some kind of God. 
Whatever the thing is that's most precious to us, we will serve it with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We will pursue it, seek it, strategize for it, try to keep it, earn it, or gain more of it than we currently have. But when we love that thing, it doesn't feel like a chore. It doesn't feel laborious. It's what we do for what we love. But the same, thing, the same possibility is true when it concerns the Christian and how they view Jesus. If he's truly precious to you, following him will require effort. But you love him, and you have been loved by him. So it doesn't feel laborious. You're willing to do whatever it takes to be close to him, even when those things are hard. Well, Randy last week in verses uh, 3 to 4 showed us that growth is necessary because as verses 3 and 4 indicate, uh, we have been given by God's divine power everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need. God's power and promises are greater than any challenge that opposes us. No addiction, no besetting sin, no disability, no set of bad experiences can stand in the way of God's power and precious promises. And that's saying an awful lot, friends, because those things that we just mentioned are very serious issues. They're not little. They're not minor. We are not belittling them. Our problem, though, is that we often want the war with those kinds of things done like that. We want it done overnight. And while forgiveness with God does work that way, the process of transformation is usually gradual, and I would add gradual by design. Do you remember uh, in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul asking for God to deliver him from this thorn in the flesh? We don't know for sure what that was, but he prayed on multiple times that God would remove it from him. It was a burden. It was a difficulty. It was an obstacle. And what did God tell him? He told him no. He said, my, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. <clears throat> Randy mentioned last week that uh, God may not give us all we want, but he gives us all we need. So let's be very clear about this. The Bible will tell you what to do. It tells you what to do with your money, with your sex life, with your time, with your values. But this this next point is, is perhaps the most important. It always tells you what to do in light of first telling you who you are in Jesus. It will tell you what to do, but it tells you what to do in light of who you are in Jesus. Think with me uh, just back to the Old Testament for a moment in terms of God's giving the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. When did he give them? He did not give the Ten Commandments to the Israelites while they were in bondage in Egypt. He did not drop Ten Commandments Uh, out of the sky and say to them, if enough of you keep enough of these for a long enough period of time, then I will come and rescue you from the hand of Pharaoh. It's not what he did. The deliverance comes first. Making them his people comes first. Establishing their identity in him comes first. Then after he's brought them to himself, Moses says, as though it were on eagle's wings, then God says, here is how you respond to the one who has bought you, to the one who has redeemed you. And that leads to our next main point. How can children of God make an effort to grow that isn't legalistic? How can we make an effort to grow that isn't legalistic? We already know that Peter thinks growth and effort are not optional. 
how do they work then if legalism is not the alternative? The key I mentioned a moment ago was this phrase in verse five that connects uh, the power and promises of verses three and four with the lists of virtues in verses five through seven. And the key phrase is this, uh, verse five, for this very reason. So for this very reason, we're to make every effort. Well, what reason? What's the reason? The reason is given in verses three and four. We are to make every effort because we have been given all we need in the power and the promises and the spirit of God. Once again, who, we, who God has made us to be in Christ comes before what he calls us to do. The gift in verses three and four precedes and empowers the call to effort in verses five through seven. You may remember along these lines a, a comment that one of the preachers made in our summer sermon series. Uh, stumbled over that one this, earlier this morning. Summer sermon series uh, on, on the spiritual disciplines. There's a comment by the late Dallas Willard who said, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Well, what is it that makes you who you are in Christ? Not your works. You don't earn your identity in Christ by your growth. The basis is always his righteousness. The effort or the growth is the fruit that confirms that your faith is a living faith. The fruits are a byproduct of what God has done in you and for you. What makes you who you are is his divine power, his forgiveness, his precious promises, his glory and excellence. Those are the things that show you how marvelously loved and fabulously equipped you have been as his child. So if that's what proclaims our identity, we need to know where to look and find those. We need to know where to see those things. And the answer that Peter will tell us in a passage that Jackson's going to preach on in a couple of weeks is that until the return of Jesus, when we see face to face, the light that shines in a dark place where we see all of these things that tells us who we are is found most especially in his word. Now that's really amazing because in the passage that Jackson's going to talk about, Peter is going to be the one who's giving us this testimony in light of his own visual observation of Jesus's glory and excellence at the transfiguration. And yet he seems to say that there is an even better glimpse of his glory and excellency in the word. That's amazing, friends. The scriptures are where we see Jesus's glory with the eyes of our hearts. It's where we feed on him and savor his excellence and his beauty. Do we know, do we understand, do we live like we believe how mighty are the messages that we are now holding in our laps? That word's not just for our inspection, for our inquiry. It's God's life-giving agent. We need to see more than just facts in it. We need to see his great and precious promises. We need to see the excellency of Christ and to get that down deep in our hearts so that we can savor it and allow the Spirit of God to apply the Word of God to do its renovating work in our hearts from the inside out. Well, if that's what we need to see, and that's where we need to see it, how do we take that preciousness down into our souls in a way that's transforming? And this is where I think the issue of effort most properly comes into the question. See, the effort that we're talking about, the effort that Peter is talking about is to meet Jesus and to behold him in his word, to drink in his precious promises and apply them to yourself. It is not an effort 
mainly to squeeze out a few more ounces of fruit, but an effort to meditate on your forgiveness and the majesty of the one who purchased it and the price that he paid to achieve it. We need to pray that God would help us adore and savor our Savior. We need to ask him to help us cherish the magnitude of the gifts of his divine power and precious promises in Christ to the point that if that had been all he ever gave us, we would know ourselves to be more richly blessed than we could possibly ask or imagine, especially more so than if he had given us all the other things we might want, but not this one needful thing. We need to ask him to make that sacrifice precious and tangible to us the next time we take the Lord's Supper. See, what I'm describing is effort, but it isn't boasting. It's not boasting in a work. The effort that we are talking about is the effort that a dehydrated man puts into pursuing water. If you're dehydrated, you would spare no effort to get water. And in the process, you would not be thinking about your effort. You'd be thinking about the nourishment. So your effort to get water wouldn't glorify effort. It would glorify water because it would show that you trusted in water to sustain you. And the same thing is true when we go to Jesus like a famished person. The the effort to get more of Jesus into our soul does not glorify effort. It glorifies Jesus. Because it says that I believe that you are where life is found and you are worth every effort to savor. Or if you prefer another analogy, the effort we're talking about is the effort of a hungry baby rooting for her mother's milk. In this previous epistle, 1 Peter 2, verse 2, Peter says, Like newborns crave the pure spiritual milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation. It's very much in concert with what he's saying here. See, the baby doesn't give itself life. Mom and dad do. But the baby must eat to grow. And our effort is similarly to continually feed on Christ in his word, to commune with him in prayer, and watch those appetites begin to grow stronger and stronger. Not settling for a feeding that is limited to data only. We need that. We need the data. But we need to press in in for tasting. Another sermon, uh, in another sermon, Jonathan Edwards talked about the difference between uh, being able to provide an advanced sort of chemical analysis of the properties of honey and tasting that same honey. There's two different kinds of knowing that are going on there, right? And while the advanced uh, uh, ability to, de- to detect and explain the chemical properties of honey has its in- advantages and, and, and is certainly, uh, certainly one thing, tasting honey is an entirely different kind of knowledge. It's the difference between knowledge that is vastly informational but demonic and that which is tasted and seen and savored and enjoyed. Well, let me, let me, let me give one suggestion, one quick suggestion on how we might sort of procedurally um, employ a mechanism that, that God may, may bless in, in enabling us to taste more and more of Jesus. And it's a, it's, it's a, this is a tried and, 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 and true uh, sort of pattern for spiritual growth going, uh, going, going centuries back. And, and it's very simply to use uh, the, the petitions of the Lord's Prayer to warm your heart and waken your affections as you go to God in prayer after you've spent time with him in the Word. So 
let's say, for example, you wake up in the morning and you uh, go to your scripture reading and after you've gone to your scripture reading, you go to your, to your prayer closet. And if you were just to, just for example, if you were just to use the, the address of the Lord's Prayer and then the first petition, maybe it would warm your heart like this. So the address is, Our Father who art in heaven, stop. Who are we praying to? What does that mean? That the one to whom we pray is simultaneously Father and in heaven. It means that he has all the tender love and compassion and care for children that, the very, that, that, that is meant by the very best use of the word, Father. But it also means that he not only has that, but he has all the power of heaven at his disposal. And so the one to whom we pray is not loving, but impotent, nor powerful, but uncaring. But the one who simultaneously, right, embodies and fulfills all of those qualities so that not only does he love his children more than we could possibly ask or imagine, but he has all the power of heaven at his disposal to see to it that his work in their lives will not fail. And then we go to the first petition, perhaps. So our Father who art in heaven, first petition, hallowed be thy name. What's that about? That's about worship. Our, our lives are driven by what we love, and what we love are things that we worship. And so the prayer, hallowed be your name, is a prayer, O Lord, to deliver me from those things in this life, maybe even good things that are getting the kind of hold on my heart that would make me regard them as more precious than you. Transform me by worship. Take that down into your soul. Take, as that warms your heart, take the best thought you have of Jesus from your time in the word. Personalize that. Apply it to your soul. See yourself at the foot of the cross, Jesus praying effectual prayers for you. See him tenderly leading and loving you as the good shepherd. Well, what about the third main point? What does Peter tell us that fruit and growth in the gospel looks like. The list of virtues begins uh, in verse 5 with faith and it ends with love, and I do think that's intentional. Growth begins from the seed of first faith, and the binding agent over all these things is love. But the other items on the list I don't think are so much sequential as they are kind of an intertwined description of the elements of a fruitful faith. And while we're not going to look at all of them, I think we can at least glean three quick truths about the nature of growth that Peter's talking about here. I think Peter communicates to us that growth is first gradual, second that it is sometimes difficult, and finally that it is totally worth it. Gradual. When Peter uses terms like make every effort, cultivate the virtue of self-control and steadfastness, those kinds of words indicate the nature, right, along with what we saw about Paul in 2 Corinthians, that growth in this life is gradual. But the good news, friends, is that if his divine power is at work in your life, it may be gradual, but it is also unstoppable. You remember uh, Eustace in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the voyage of the Dawn Treader in particular, was at one time a very obnoxious and difficult to deal with young boy. 
And he underwent a great change after which C.S. Lewis described Eustace like this. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that, f- that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. That's what Peter's describing. He's describing a perseverance in savoring Jesus day by day through ups and downs that over the course of a lifetime, the acorn becomes an oak. We know that one feeding won't last a baby a month, a year, or ten. One feeding on Christ will not last us a month or year or 10. There are too many distractions and temptations and lures trying to get us to believe that some other thing is more precious than him. So it takes effort to prefer Christ today. It will take effort to get up 30 minutes earlier tomorrow for meditation and prayer. It will take effort to trim overcommitted schedules. But again, the effort is not for effort's sake. And it most definitely is not for earning's sake. The effort is to be satisfied in Jesus once again, one day at a time, as often as necessary. Well, Peter's list indicates that the growth may be gradual and also that it may be difficult at times. Friends, we know there's no middle ground in this, right? We're either beating back the cancer of the world, the flesh, and the devil, or if we're not, they're advancing on us. Our our enemies are patient. They are attentive. This is why in Genesis 4, Moses can describe the sin at Cain's door as sin that crouches. What's that? It's trying to hide. It's making itself look small. It's trying to disguise its intent, only to leap and devour him like a lion after it's too late. This is why John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sin is trying to desensitize you. It is trying to numb you. It is trying to cultivate you into the kind of person who finds your sin more precious than Jesus. So when Peter talks about the virtue of steadfastness, he certainly means that the fight will include failures at times. And and, and we know that that's true from the person who wrote this letter, right? He knows that his fight included failures at times, but it also means, and Peter experienced this as well, that when you repent, you don't let your failure define you. Because Jesus hasn't defined you by your failure in the same way that he didn't define Peter by his. We also learn from the virtue of steadfastness to begin to see trials in some ways as mysterious blessings of God. Again, not necessarily getting all we want, but being forced in times of trial and difficulty to rely more on God and less on the good things that we love. Gradual, difficult, worth it. There's nothing in all creation more powerful than God's divine power and his precious promises, not Satan, not death itself, which of course doesn't mean that this path is easy or that you won't need to seek help and counsel from time to time, but it does mean that we have all that we need. And think with me for just a moment about how this fits in with with what Peter's talking about when he mentions the virtue of self-control. Maybe you've heard the quotation by Bruce Marshall in one of his novels that a young man who knocks at the door of a brothel 
is seeking God. A young man who knocks at the door of a brothel is seeking God. That's a very startling way of putting things, isn't it? And yet it's true. Because the young man at the door of a brothel is seeking something worthy of worship. The sex drive collapses very easily into a worship drive. And the young man at the door of the brothel is in search of transcendence, ecstasy. He doesn't realize that he's looking for God, but he is making all kinds of sacrifices to worship and serve one. And Peter's opponents are saying to us, that's totally okay. They're paving the, they're paving the road to hell with passions that enslave while promising freedom. We'll see that in chapter 2, verse 19. So the self-control of saying no to those kinds of lusts is ultimately a matter of what's becoming precious to you. Are the promises of Jesus or the promises of defiling passion becoming more precious to you? The direction of godly self-control is to savor Jesus more than clicking. Clearly, at times, that will involve strategies and thinking about how to uh, follow Christ in ways that resist strongholds and besetting sins in our lives and maybe using things like filters and accountability partners. But those strategies must always be understood to serve the goal of growing in love for Jesus more than we love the escapes into the realm of false intimacy. So we see that his promises and his person are better than any of our lusts. We can see that in the difference between how Jesus treats people and how pornography treats people. And we love him. And we learn to follow him a little bit more. And as time goes by, we begin to look and smell a little bit more like him. And you get down the road a ways and you look back and you begin to wonder how you could ever have wanted anything else to the point that you might just enjoy the peace that passes understanding when death comes to your doorstep and finds it can't deter you from finding Jesus more precious even then. Friends, when those kinds of wheels start to turn in our lives, that's how we know that while we may know less than devils, we see more than they do. And I want you to know that this passage is meant to be an encouragement to you. If you can hear what I'm saying today and you're thinking, mm, I'm not sure that's encouraging. That's kind of scary because I don't think I have much of that fruit in my life. I've kind of settled down and become content with merely knowing about Jesus. I've treated him as the proverbial fire insurance policy. That could be a cause for fear. But friend, I want you to know what a mercy it is to have that revelation today. What a revelation to know now. And, and to some extent, there's none of us in this room who is savoring Jesus and growing to the degree to which we could, right? So what does Peter want from any of us today? He wants us to repent and feed. Repent and feed. That's what he wants. He wants us to repent of regarding Jesus cavalierly, of functionally forgetting how he cleanses us. He wants us to meet him in his word, to take him down into our soul in prayer, to gaze on his beauty and watch him transform us into his own image from one degree of glory to another. Would you pray with me to that end? <clears throat> God, again, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see all the riches that we've been given in your son. We ask that you would awaken a sense of preciousness of him to us. 
We ask that you would fuel our steps of effort that we take today and this week as we seek a sense of steadfastness in knowing and savoring and enjoying your worthiness. We ask, Lord, that all of the effort that we give would be to your glory and not our own. Amen. Well, Walt's going to lead us in a time of response, but as he does, I just want to encourage you to feel the freedom to respond to this passage as the Holy Spirit is leading you. If you need to repent, repent. If you need to confess, confess. If you need to pray with someone, pray with someone. If you need to meditate on his preciousness, do that. And feel free to continue doing those things even while others join in singing.